Mark chapter 5, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is one of my most favorite accounts in the whole of the Bible because it's so uh, dramatic. It's so uh, outstanding. We just don't see things like this in our day and age. So I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in and, and plow through 20 verses of Mark's chapter, or uh, Mark's gospel, which is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. Father, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we give you thanks and praise for revealing yourself to us through your word all 66 books, a gift to us. Father, you have spoken clearly to us. You have displayed who you are and what you expect, what you want from your children, and what you expect from those who are not in relationship with you through Jesus, those who are lost, those who are without hope. Father, we thank you that we who long to know you in a deeper and fuller way, have the promise that more will be given. Father, as we dig into your word, as we seek your face through prayer, as we desire to know you in a deeper and fuller way, you give us more and more and more. We thank you for that gift. Whoever has will be given more, and we want to be those who have and who long for more and receive more. And so at this time, Father, would you come by your Holy Spirit, help us in this room, help us who are streaming right now, help us to see Jesus more clearly for who he is and for what he has accomplished for all those who will trust in him, all those whom the Lord our God will call to himself. We pray, help us now in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. So what we're going to do is we're simply going to read the text. And then we're going to give brief explanation and application as we go along. We shall start with verses 1 to 5. Mark 5, 1 to 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." A terrible scene, a terrible place to be if you're a human being. And right prior to this text, we didn't get to dig into it last week because we ran out of time, but Jesus has crossed the sea, and while he is in the sea, a large, dangerous storm arises. And it threatens to sink the boat that the apostles, the disciples are in along with Jesus. And he is exhausted from his ministry. And so he says, uh, they say to him, Jesus, he's sleeping on a cushion. Don't you care that we are going to die? 
And Jesus calmly, I imagine, wakes up, assesses the situation, sees there's water at his feet, and he simply talks to the wind and to the waves as if they would listen to him and obey him. And he says, be still. And like a swimming pool with no wind. It's just crystal clear as glass and no wind. You can hear birds chirping from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Just silence. What's going on here? Jesus is flexing his authority, his power over his creation. The same God that said, let there be waters and wind is the same God who can say, be stilled waters and wind. And they have no choice but to obey him. And so right after this incident, you can imagine that the disciples are still wet from the storm, still dripping, and they land on the other side of the sea, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and they came to the other side of the sea. So, so picture this. They, they just went through this traumatic experience. They're dripping wet. They just thought they were going to die, and, and the last verse of chapter 4 basically says, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Question mark. The disciples are baffled by this man who they thought they knew. Like we, we thought he was a good teacher. We thought he had powers from God, but we've never seen anything like this. Someone that could talk to hurricane winds and they listen And so after this traumatic experience, their mouths still open, their eyes still wide, their hair still dripping, you know, wringing out their robes, they come to the other side of the sea. To the country of the Gerasenes. And Jesus had stepped out of the boat. Now that's that's important. That is purposeful. The disciples did not step out of the boat. And we see why later, because this is unclean territory. Unclean in the sense that this man, verse 3, lived among the tombs. Now, in ancient Judaism, before Pentecost, before the cross, before the resurrection, there was all these clean and unclean laws that you had to keep. And if you were unclean, you were separated from God and from his presence and from worship until you went through a set of rituals and sacrifices, until you were made clean again. And so they were not allowed to touch dead bodies or instruments that touched dead bodies. They were not allowed to be among the tombs. And so the disciples are like, this is an unclean place. I'm not getting out of the boat. And this region of the Gerasenes here, the tombs were cut into the hillside. If you can imagine like mountainous, hilly regions, and then caves in the hillside. This is where this man lived. He lived in the caves, in the tombs. He lived among the dead. And he himself was not only spiritually dead, but he was on his way to becoming physically dead. Because we learn about his lifestyle about his condition as we move on. So the disciples don't step out of the boat, but Jesus, look at this, what would defile Jesus doesn't defile him. He's not made unclean by stepping onto unclean territory. No, rather, he steps onto unclean territory, and as his foot, his holy foot, touches the uncleanness, it's like cleanse. It's like this 
I imagine like light coming out of Jesus' feet. Though I'm imaginative, there probably wasn't glory coming out of his feet because he was more like a human being than he was like God at this time. But I imagine in the spiritual realm, he steps and it's just a glowing patch of cleanliness, not unclean. And so Jesus is not afraid to step into the uncleanness. And isn't that good news for us? Because we are the unclean. We are the ones who cannot enter into God's presence. We are the ones who would be barred from God because of our unholiness. Because we dwell among a people of unclean lips, and we too are a people of unclean lips. And our eyes cannot, without filter of Jesus, behold the King. And so Jesus steps out, unafraid, with authority, just having calmed the sea and the wind, and immediately, so, so think about this, he steps out of the boat onto the shore, and immediately something happens. No time to waste. What happens? There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, there's two more accounts of this in Matthew 8 and in Luke 8. And and the picture is, he comes running out of the tomb towards Jesus, out of the darkness. And as we learn, this man would, would be in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, screaming. He was a terrifying human being. You would be in your bed at night, in the little town there, and hear him in the mountains at night, screaming and crying out. And you would be fearful. Jesus is not afraid. So here comes Jesus calmly stepping out of the boat, and here comes this demonized man running at him. Probably he didn't realize who Jesus was. If that's the case, he was probably coming to either scare him or harm him. If he did know who Jesus was, which I actually lean this way, then he saw into the spirit realm, and he recognized that he was in big trouble. God was coming for him. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, anymore, which means at some point he was bound, but when he was bound, he would always break out, not even with a chain. For he had often, often been bound with shackles and chains. Shackles would go around your wrists and around your ankles, and then chains would lock them together, and he would be chained up, and he would just supernaturally with demonic strength break the chains and break the the shackles of metal i mean this is a super human being right here but his superpowers are not good superpowers they are evil and destructive superpowers and he broke the shackles in pieces No one had the strength to subdue him. So I can imagine that at times there was probably the strongest men of that region. This is a Gentile region. Uh, Men who could do 100 push-ups in a row and who could, you know, do 1,000 sit-ups at at one time. Many of these men would probably jump on this man and seek to subdue him, and they could get a shackle on him, get a a chain around him, and he would overpower them all. And, And no one, look at what the text says, no one had the strength to subdue him. This man is stronger than all other men around. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always, always. So think about this. Night and day, always, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, this is what supernatural evil power will do to a person. 
You know, we, we like this in the fantasy realm. It's attractive to us. Uh, in, in movies and in books, we like supernatural evil power. It's attractive. But listen, in reality, when people give themselves over to evil spirits, we have no idea what the backstory was of this man. You know, John Piper wrote a graphic novel uh, imagining the backstory of this man. It's called The Gadarene. Uh, you can pick it up at Desiring God. But, but we don't know the backstory here. We're not given much information except that this man was cutting himself with sharp stones. He was day and night crying out and no one could overpower him. The power that these demons gave this man was a destructive power. Look, he harms himself. He's in a sense crazy. You know, he's more than crazy, but he's at minimum crazy. He is very psychologically disturbed because he's crying out day and night and cutting himself with stones. And yet he lives. And he lives among the dead in the tombs. This is the man, and here Jesus comes to meet this man. This is the scene. Then in verse 6, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So the scene is he runs at Jesus. He sees him from afar, and crying out with a loud voice. Picture the scene. Disciples still in the boat. Jesus steps onto the shore. This crazy man comes running towards Jesus and yelling out with a loud voice. Like if we were in the boat, we would be wide-eyed and fearful for ourselves. Like we just had a fear encounter with Jesus talking to the wind and the waves. And now here comes this demon-possessed crazy man running at Jesus. And what's going to happen? And he cries out, what have you to do with me? And look at the recognition here, friends. Jesus, son of the most high God. This demon, and this is why I think this is more than just uh, this man seeing something of the power of Jesus. This is the supernatural realm on display for us. This is the demons inside this man seeing the most high God in human form and they can tell who he is. They've met this person before. This isn't the first encounter that these demons have had with Jesus. And they say, you are the son of the most high God. Now, interestingly, Mark, Mark likes to drop these little hints in and he doesn't tell us what he's doing. But notice, chapter 4 ended with, Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And the disciples can't answer the question, but who does answer the question? Those who know. Because they have insight into the unseen realm. They know who this is. And so we get the answer not from who we'd expect. 
We get the answer from those who can see spiritual reality and that we are, we are so often blind to. He sees Jesus as the Son of the Most High God, and now he's going to do something that we can miss if we're not familiar with first century demonology. Uh, those would, th- those persons who tried to do exorcisms would often try to get the name of the spirit and then they would have some kind of power over him. And this is what's happening. Jesus, I know who you are. And then when that doesn't work, he appeals to the highest authority. Next, I adjure you by your father. (laughs) When it didn't work, when he called out the name and he didn't have power over him, he then, in submission, begs for mercy. I adjure you by the only authority higher than you, at least is what the demon perceives. I adjure you by God. And what does he ask? Do not torment me. Do not torment me? Now, now where would we get that from? Where did he get that from? Why did he think Jesus had come for him and he had come for him to torment him? Well, in, in the Luke account, look what he says. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss. What's the abyss? It's the bottomless pit. When I was a kid, I remember we had evangelistic Sundays on Sunday nights when I was a kid, and you were supposed to bring your, uh, your unsaved friends and relatives, and there would always be an evangelistic sermon on Sunday nights. Anyone come from that kind of tradition? No? No clue what I'm talking about. Okay. So this would happen, and there would be every Sunday night an altar call. You would respond to a a gospel message, and if you want to ask Jesus into your heart, and if you want to confess your sins, if you want to repent from your sins, you come down front, or you stand up, and you pray this prayer of confession and repentance. And I remember as a kid hearing about the bottomless pit. And I would have dreams, kind of like nightmares. I would imagine myself falling, and falling, and falling, and it never ending. And it was the strangest dream. And I would wake up and I would be in my bed. I can remember that as a little child. The the bottomless pit, the abyss, it used to scare the snot out of me. (laughs) And how much more is this demon afraid than I was? Just from hearing about it. He knows something of it. And you know why? Because he knows his fellow demons, his fellow evil spirits have been sent there before. And why would the son of the most high God show up unless I was about to be sent there? Now, now where do we get? How, How did he know that there were imprisoned demons in this abyss? Well, we get it from Jude, but Jude is getting it from Genesis 6. Now, a while back in our theology series, I did a a piece on the Nephilim, and some of you liked that, some of you were confused by that, and one of our comments on YouTube was, what do you have against aliens? (laughs) And, And when you get into, you know, aliens in the Bible, Genesis 6 and the Nephilim are always confused with aliens. That's where that comes from. But Jude here, listen, in verses 5 through 7, is most definitely... I stand my ground that he is referencing Genesis 6 and the evil spirits that transgressed and left their posts of the spirit realm and cohabitated with human women. Now look at this. 
Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude is a warning letter. It's one chapter of warning and be careful and beware and watch out. Now look at this, verse 6. And the angels, good angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Angels that left their post... God condemned to this abyss, and they are being kept there right now as I preach. They're there, and they are being kept there until the great judgment day. They're not allowed out. And then look at verse 7, a context clue of what he's talking about. How did they sin? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise... The angels likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That Greek can be translated different flesh. Different flesh. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is how this legion within this man knows, oh my gosh, I'm about to be sent to the abyss like Genesis 6. That's how he knows. And so he says, please don't torment me. And in Luke, we get added, don't send us to the abyss, please, please. For he was saying to him, this is what Jesus was saying. So now Jesus is speaking and we get insight into what he was saying. What was he saying? Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. (laughs) Please don't send us to the abyss. We'll come out, but please don't send us to the pit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He flips it. All right, you asked me, or no, you told me what my name was. What's your name? And his response is remarkable and baffling. My name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 9. Now, a legion in Roman soldiers was two to 6,000 soldiers. This man takes this name, and maybe there wasn't 6,000 demons inside this man. And then, you know, it's very interesting to think about physicality and spiritual spatiality. How in the world do 2,000 at least, I think, because 2,000 pigs go running into the water. So I'm imagining at minimum 2,000 inside this man but maybe up to six? How do they fit in there? (laughs) Like, how are all... So imagine, you've heard of multiple personality disorders where you hear two or three people in your head talking. Imagine imagine two to 6,000 voices. No wonder he's crying out all the time. No wonder he's cutting himself with stones. Just trying to silence the internal voices. This is a sad state. And this is a warning for anyone who would want to play with dark magic. I'll tell one story. I had a friend growing up in my party days who was into like the the occult and dark magic and doing dabbling with witchcraft and, and he would often play with the Ouija board. 
And he told us stories about how things would disappear and reappear in his room. And, and he was one who would watch with joy, had a collection, the, the documentaries, Faces of Death. Anyone in their depraved days seen any of those videos? They're horrible. Don't watch them. It's just real life killings and aborted babies. Uh, it's, it's terrible. But this man enjoyed these. And I, at the time, as depraved as I was, enjoyed them too. It shows you how wicked I was and how depraved I was. And I was partying in the woods with this man. And, and we always partied in the woods. That was our, that was our spot. <laughs> Tyree's like, don't go in the woods and party, man. What are you thinking? That's, that's a setup to a horror movie. <laughs> and, and so after several 40 ounces, this man, and I was his friend. Look at the, this guy, you know, he was guy that you would think of would be into the occult. You know, dark hair, kind of like parted in the middle, down to here. He would kind of look at you like this. And, and he grabs me by the throat, and he picks me up in the air, and he begins to squeeze my throat. And I can't breathe. And I'm going, and I'm not going to say his name. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, I'm putting the fear of, and he said his last name, into you right now. And he just squeezed. And he dropped me. <laughs> and I shook it off and we just kept drinking. But now looking back, <laughs> I was blind. Right? And this, this guy and his friends would play the Ouija board right in front of me. And they would talk to spirits. And I would kind of stand back, kind of like watching, like, I'm not touching that. And they're talking to evil spirits supposedly right there and getting messages. And friends, don't. Don't do that. It's not a game. It's real. And not that everyone who plays with the stuff is really incurring darkness, but certainly some do. And this is a picture right here of what can happen when you open yourself up to spiritual darkness. And often they promise good on the front end. Often it's some kind of comfort, it's some kind of power, it's some kind of knowledge, it's some kind of good that is being promised. And we don't know what happened that this man got this legion, but somehow they got into him. Please don't. It's, it's not fake. This is not just biblical hyperbole. This is real, friends. It's real. And I want to talk more about things I've seen and experiences, but we won't get through the text. So we have to stick to the text for a little bit. What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly. Like, get, get the intensity of the begging. Don't send us to the pit. Don't send us to the abyss. Please, I adjure you by God, please, not to send them out of the country. Now, now, this is interesting as well, and we could drill in here a little bit. We don't have a lot of time. But demons don't like to be disembodied. Like, where are you getting that from? Well, Jesus talks about exorcisms, and he says, what happens when a demon is thrust out of a person, and then it goes through arid places, waterless places, the wilderness, and it can't find a dwelling, and then it comes back to the house that it left, finds it swept clean, put in order, and then brings seven spirits more evil than itself to dwell in that home again. 
So we get something of a revelation that demons don't like to just be floating around in the atmosphere. No, they like to be inside of human beings. Now, why that is, I do not know. We as human beings were created to be indwelt, not by evil spirits, but by the Holy Spirit. There's only one spirit that is supposed to live inside of a human being, and it's the Holy Spirit of God, by which Jesus told us in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Now, we who have the Holy Spirit are not in danger of also being filled with demons. You know, possession language is very confusing and it's not helpful. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that an evil spirit or an unclean spirit possesses a person. Rather, it says the opposite. It says people have demons. The possession language is like, this is my possession. It's an iPad. It's mine. So Satan doesn't possess people, but people can possess an evil spirit or an unclean spirit. Now, on another level, Jesus tells us in John 8 that anyone who is not in Christ is a child of the devil. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do his will. Ephesians 2 says that we all, including Christians, were among them at one time. Who is the them? Those who were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in some sense, Satan is at work in every unbeliever, and he was certainly at work in my life prior to being born again and regenerate. And I praise God that I escaped his clutches. And I, I, I would be interested to hear your stories. Not right now. But, but I would be really interested to hear your stories. Because I know you have them. Because we live in not just a physical world. We live in a physical world that is also at the same time and in the same space inhabited by unseen realities. Don't be so modern or postmodern or post-postmodern that you think this is mythology or some kind of fairy taleism. It's not. It's pointing to realities. Verse 11. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. So, in addition, not besides the tombs, we understand why the disciples didn't get out of the boat. Because pigs were forbidden animals. They were not allowed to herd them. They were not allowed to eat them. They were unclean animals. So you have all this uncleanness. So you can understand why the disciples are like, not me. I heard of pigs over there, tombs over there. That crazy unclean guy coming out of the tomb right now, what is it? And, you know, they're, they're just not getting out. But Jesus steps right into this unclean, uncleanliness. And you know why? Because Jesus is now fulfilling his mission to gather his sheep who are not of this fold, John 10. The Gentiles also are beginning to be included. Us who love bacon and honey glazed ham. <laughs> us, we, we are the ones who would be in the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, that's us. We are the Gentiles. And so Jesus is stepping into Gentile territory to take back what is rightfully his people. This is an illustration of Jesus binding the strong man and robbing his house. 
And this demon, look, is in full submission, laying on the ground, begging for mercy. And remember, up to this point, no one could subdue him. For he had often been chained and shackled, and he would just... But no shackles, no chains, all Jesus has to do is say, come out. And he's flat on his face begging for mercy. Friends, this is the question. Demons recognize the authority of Jesus. They recognize who he is. Do we? Do we realize who we're dealing with, who we're singing to, who we're praying to, who we're telling others about? Do we realize? Because this legion realized. He understands the authority of Jesus. He can, with a word, send him to be tortured in the pit until the great day. And he begs for mercy. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Let's move on to Mark 5.13. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits, spirits, plural, came out and entered the pigs. Now, we don't want to read too much into this. But don't say that evil spirits can't inhabit animals. Because they can. It just happened. Entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the, into the sea. Now get this, the disciples are in the boat, and now all these dead floating pigs come washing up to them. <laughs> This, this is a, 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 an amazing scene here. If you were in the boat, you would be like, what is going on? All these dead floating pigs, this demon-possessed man. And at this point, as soon as they come out of him, he, he kind of like shakes his face and he wakes up to reality. He looks around and he's like, where am I? What's going on? The herdsmen, verse 14, those watching the pigs, seeing this all happen, Fled, fled. That's a, they moved fast. They ran. And they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what, what had happened. It went viral, right? So it's like they had the, the smartphone, they put it on Facebook Live, they YouTubed it, and boom, it went viral. And now everyone's coming to see what had just happened. Certainly those who earn, owned the pigs are coming to see what happened. Because that was a lot of money. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Same response as the disciples when he said to the wind and the waves, be still. When you encounter Jesus in his Holiness in his glory, when he's acting out of the authority that he has as God, you will be afraid. But yet, when you see him in his humanity, you can slap him, you can blindfold him and punch him, you can drive nails into his hands and thorns into his brow and think nothing of it. But when you see him in his glory, here here his glory is breaking out again. What is the result? Fear. 
Now, this is a different kind of fear than the disciples. The disciples had an awe kind of fear. Who is this that is in my boat that was sleeping on my couch last night? The townsfolk are afraid as in, you terrify us, get away from me. You freak me out. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus. A lot of begging going on here. <laughs> A lot of begging. Depart from this region. Now, now think about this. Jesus had, had great mercy on the man. The man is now clothed. Where did he get the clothes? M maybe the disciples had some extra clothes in the boat. And Jesus turned around and was like, Peter, throw me that extra cloak. Give me that robe. And gave the man some clothes. And he's sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And he's in his right mind. Meaning he can think clearly. He can talk clearly. And all the people who came to see what had happened, they knew who this was. And they are blown away by him with clothes on and subdued, no chains, no shackles, submissive and learning and conversating. Like you would at Starbucks with a grande with your, with your girlfriend. That's what's happening here. And they are freaked out and they beg him, please leave. Please get out of here. Please leave our presence. As he, so so he, he, he listens to the people. Amazing. Like Jesus is so kind and compassionate when it comes to people, even when they reject him. He's like, okay, if you don't want me, I'm not going to force myself upon you. But the one whom he had mercy on, look at his response. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him. There's some more begging. The demons are begging. The crowd is begging. And now the man without the demons is begging. Do you see the authority coming through again with Jesus here? Begging. What's he begging? That he might be with him. I love that. You see, we who have been forgiven much, what's the result? We love much. You see, this man... Maybe, maybe he had a, a, a wife and children. Maybe he had a mother and father and brothers and sisters. And he's like, I, I just want to be with Jesus. Please, begging, let me go with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. And this is legit. This is not, listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is a genuine request out of love and gratitude. He recognizes who Jesus is, and he just wants to be with him. And friends, this is an appropriate response. If you see what Jesus has done for you. Listen, I'm not trying to condemn anyone right now. That's not my job. But I want you to understand that if you realize the depth of forgiveness and the love behind that forgiveness, you will not see it as a small thing. You will not be apathetic towards Jesus. He won't just be an add-on like a purse to your outfit. All the dudes are like, what? <laughs> Ladies get it. He's, he's not just a, a tie to add flavor to your suit. It means everything. 
And this man sees, I will leave everything and follow after you. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not my plan for you, friend. What's the plan? And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Aren't you that guy? Yes. How are you alive, first of all? And how am I having a conversation with you right now? The Lord, and he tells the story. And he is, if you will, the first Gentile evangelist. Now, something else should be noted. Up to this point, when Jesus did a miracle, he was like, don't tell anyone. Be quiet. Keep. Now he says, no, you go and tell. I don't want you with me. I want you to be on mission, and you go and tell all that the Lord has done, all that the Most High God has done for you. And later what's going to happen is he's prepping the people because Jesus is going to show up again later in Mark, and he's going to tell them more about him. And this man's on mission. Now quickly, with my last four minutes, I want to show you something here. Just a few things to close. Number one, we do not have any instruction or authority to be doing this kind of demonic deliverance ministry. Now, I know people take it upon themselves to do things like this. Scripture has not authorized them. (laughs) Do you want to know how the Bible says we are to do spiritual warfare? We are to be diligent disciples. We are to tell the truth. We are to kill sin. We are to resist the devil and pray. Now, very few places in the epistles do we see Satan show up. But in a few places, you should recognize and heed. So let's do that real quick. 1 John 3, 7 to 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, God, is righteous. Now, practices means this is consistent with you. It doesn't mean you always do what is righteous, but you are on the path of righteousness. And the general disposition of your life is you are acting righteously. Whoever makes a practice, notice the practice, of sinning is of the devil. So, so how do we do spiritual warfare? We live righteously. How do we know what is righteous and unrighteous? The Bible makes that clear. It's not the morality of the culture that we are to live by. Rather, it's the standards that the New Testament in particular lie down and the places in the Old Testament that touch the moral law of God. And this is how you do spiritual warfare. You live righteously. Look at this. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I love that verse. One of the reasons Jesus incarnated was to destroy Satan's work and activity. 
And Satan's main work and activity is to disrupt God's plans for creation and his people, meaning those made in his image. And that's what he's been doing ever since. And Jesus comes to reverse the activity of the devil. Sin separates us from God. And if you, listen friends, if you're tolerating sin and practicing sin, you are automatically choosing a side, whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not. You know I'm not? Yes, you are. Whoever practicing sin, sin is of the devil. And so just by you living an unrighteous life and following after your flesh and living unrepentantly, you are representing a team. You've heard of the Imago Dei. Well, what about the Imago Diablo? When you sin, you are imaging him because he has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Notice the practice language. It doesn't say never sins. It's practice. For God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit, abides, that means remains, in him. Because he has been born of God. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So there are children of the devil. Yes. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I mean, John is being really clear here. Offensively clear, right? Some would say outrageously clear. If you are practicing unrighteousness, you are of Satan. Period. Again, that doesn't mean that we... We as Christians never sin. No, we sin. I've said it before. It doesn't mean we are sinless, but as we grow, we sin less. We sin less and less and less, and we become more righteous and more righteous. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, very quickly, I'm, I'm out of time. Ephesians 4 is the practical application of chapters 1 to 3. And he says, having put away falsehood, remember John 8? The devil is the liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. You speak English, maybe you speak Spanish, maybe you speak a couple other languages. Satan speaks lie fluently. And when you lie, you're speaking his language. You are imaging him. That's what's going on. I tell my kids this all the time. It doesn't stop them, but I tell it to them. We were made to image God, Genesis 1, 26, 27. When you lie, you are imaging Satan. This is not good, guys. And then five minutes later, I catch them in some deviant act, and they lie again. And I'm like, I guess it doesn't matter that you're imaging Satan. Seems like you like this. Sinners do like imaging Satan. Now watch this. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. As Christians, we are more united than it looks on the surface, especially in these days. Watch this, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Look, and give no opportunity to who? to the devil. Therefore, if you are angry and you are sinning in your anger, and if you are not being truthful, you are giving opportunity to the devil. 
Hold on to anger. Let it fester. Let it build. The devil's coming in. I've done nothing but quote Ephesians 4. And so is there any question about what's going on on the news? And, and I'm not trying to justify a position here. I'm just reading the scripture and saying, we as Christians are to deal with our anger. Yes? No? If we don't, the devil is coming. There's very few places in the New Testament when we're told Satan has direct activity in these areas. Another one, married people, is 1 Corinthians 7. And you know what it's about? It's in marriage, not having frequent marital blessing. (laughs) It says, often come back together and give no opportunity to the devil so that Satan doesn't tempt you. That's literally what it says. We don't play games with our sexuality in marriage because if you do, Satan is coming in. Now you might say, oh, read 1 Corinthians 7 and notice how many times in the New Testament Satan is mentioned and his activity is mentioned. This is one, 1 Corinthians 7 is one, and 1 John is one, and there's not many more. That means when it says directly, this is what Satan's doing, you do spiritual warfare by listening to those texts, dealing with your anger, doing right by your spouse, marital blessing wise. (laughs) There's little ears in the room. Um, And there's so much more that could be said here, right? Um, But but we don't have time. I'm done. So here's what I want to do right now is say, listen, please, friends, Don't play games with spiritual darkness. And the the extraordinary is what we just went through, but the ordinary is how we ended. And Satan's main work in the West, in particular in the United States, in this 2020 season, is not extraordinary. It's hidden, it's concealed, and it's in secret. It's in hidden ways that we can't even really perceive that he's at work. But there are ways to do spiritual warfare, and it's by you being truthful, dealing with your anger, loving your spouse, seeking the power of God to sin less, getting your mind more in line with God's will and less in line with Satan's will, maturing as a Christian, Resisting temptation, which is resisting the devil. And James, resist the devil, James 4, 7, and he will flee. This is spiritual warfare. This is what it looks like for us. When you look at Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, it's truth, it's righteousness, it's the word of God, it's the gospel. We're not to be doing what Jesus did here. What is your name? Come out. That, that's not, we're not sanctioned to do that kind of thing. Now, if it comes to you, and, and you know, you're, you're being floated off the ground in a counseling session, I say, pull out the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus. Come out. You know, do it at that point. But, but this, is, this text is not prescriptive. It's descriptive of the authority of Jesus. Okay? And 
I think we should end by saying that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the works of the devil for us, if we did not get delivered, would be for us to be in punishment with him forever. He wants us to join him in the abyss. He wants us right beside him on judgment day, landing with a condemnation status forever. Yet in Christ, friends, there is no condemnation. In Christ, we have escaped the snare of the devil. In Christ, we have a new father. It can no longer be said of us, we are of our father, the devil. No, we have a new father. And we have a new big brother and a new family. We are brand new and different. We are in a different kingdom. The God of this world will be cast out. And we can have hope for that. And it will be amazing to see one day when God pulls back the invisible realm and shows us all the satanic activity in our lives, in this city, nationwide, worldwide. Where was Satan at work? And I think we will be shocked to see that he was very involved. You say, oh, come on, man. Are you just, is this hyperbole? You can spare two to 6,000 demons for one guy? How many are there? And how are they at work all over the world? Friends, greater is he that is in us, finish it, than he that is in the world. We are promised victory, and the tools that we have may not be as spectacular, but they are powerful. And so we fight with the gospel, we fight with truth, we fight with the power of the Holy Spirit to live rightly. And so I'm going to pray and ask that God help us to do that. And then we will sing and we will take communion together and rejoice in this great salvation that Jesus has won from us, for us. Not only has he won for us forgiveness from his Father, but he has won for us the escape from Satan's kingdom.